with, uh, with the port ministry and with this Kairos ministry. I just want to say this, because we take seriously what Jesus tells us to do, this is why we're involved in these things. Because Jesus said, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. That's why we're involved in the port ministry. Because they get fed, they get a night's sleep, they're offered clothing, they're offered medical, during the course of the time, they're offered medical services, they're offered help in trying to find a place to stay. There's all this help that's offered, and we're a part of that ministry because we take the words of Jesus seriously. So I just want to, I just want to encourage you, if you think you might be interested, the, the, even the morning shift that you go and you help them check out or you help them have breakfast, it's, it's, it's from like four or five until like seven. It's, just, it's a short period of time. You don't miss any. And, but it's a great way of ministering to the least of these. Or with the Kairos ministry, what did Jesus say? He said, I was in prison. You didn't visit me. Well, this is why we're supporting this. You know, even, even with something as small as a dozen cookies, it's a way of saying, Jesus, we take your words seriously. We take what you say seriously, and that filters into everything we do. I mean, that filters into, as we look at this, this book of Hosea, we take this book seriously. If you don't take it seriously, it's worthless. But if you take it seriously, this book can be life-changing. And so we're talking about a scandalous love. We're in Hosea chapter 2. It's an incredibly long passage. Uh, not, it's not an incredibly long passage. Why did I overstate that? But you see, it takes up, I had to do all the work of printing on two sides, a lot of work for me. And so this book is about, and let's just refresh, it's about betrayal. I mean, this is the theme of the book, is this betrayal. And it's a story of two parallel messages, uh, messages, marriages. It's Hosea and Gomer, and it's God and his people. And the key is, what we have to do in a situation like this, we have to put ourselves in the story. You really have to work and, and God is challenging us in this book and in lots of his books. He challenges us to do the hard work mentally of putting ourselves into the story of seeing this family. And how does that make you feel? You know, for some, it could make you, you see a family like that, it could make you feel sad. For some, it could make you feel self-righteous. For some, some people would mock when they see a family going through tremendous difficulties. But we also have to take it a step further because this is the story of God and us. I am Gomer. You are Gomer. God opens the curtains here. This is an amazing thing. God opens the curtains and he reveals his pain. He's showing us his pain here. He shows us his heart. He shows us his hurt. He shows us the agony of betrayal. And God shares with us the pain that he feels when we sin. He shares, a, he shares with us. I mean, this book is, 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 is such, a, such a brilliant book. It seems kind of silly to call a book of the Bible a brilliant book because God wrote it, so it's kind of brilliant, yeah. But it's, it's, it's profound because it shows us the hurt he feels. It shows us the anger he feels in the betrayal. We get to see the heart of God at its most, at its most vulnerable point. God shows us. He opens up to us. Imagine that. Imagine that. There have been times where um, uh, sometimes with me 
not a while back, one of my kids said, Dad, you were having a medical problem, and you didn't really tell me the extent of that medical problem. You didn't tell me the whole truth. And I said, you're right. I didn't. I didn't want to burden you. I didn't want to, you know, I, I thought I was looking out for my kids, and, and it turns out that it, it actually hurt them. I, I wasn't looking out for them. I, I actually hurt them. And God says, I'm going to, I'm just going to wide open. I'm going to share with you the unblemished truth of how I feel right now. I'm hurt. I'm betrayed. I'm devastated. I'm angry. We always get angry. If, if it's someone we love, it and, and they do something wrong or they're going in a... That, that creates anger. That, that's a normal thing. And so we have to enter into this. What do you do when you're betrayed? What would you do? Would you get somebody back? Would you want to get even, get revenge? Or would you want to try to win them back? And if you try to win them back, how do you win them back? How do you change a person's heart? You can't force a person. You can't force their heart. And so we have this incredible book, and it's a matter of the heart. God is continually zeroing in on this fact that it's a heart matter that's going on here. So the first thing I want you to see is a betrayed lover. And I'm trying to show it to you. There it is. It's a betrayed lover. It's verses 2 through 5 there on your sheet. And let me read those. It says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. You see, God is pouring his heart out here. He's saying, ah, oh, and, 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 and this word rebuke actually in the Hebrew has this word of a, of a pleading. It's a pleading. It's not, it's not a rebuke like you are wrong. It's like this, what you've done is killing me. Please stop. And he's and he even to the point now we get we see this this idea that you know as we look at it in this chapter we tend to think Hosea and Gomer but this this chapter and it shows itself more and more as we read the chapter is basically God's point of view towards his children towards Israel the nation and that's what's that's what the the conversation is it's not just Hosea talking to Gomer um, the context is God speaking to his nation and and the idea is that. Like Gomer is cheating on Hosea in chapter 1, now in chapter 2 we're seeing how the nation of Israel is, is cheating, is committing adultery against God and the magnitude of their treachery towards God. And so the, in a sense, you know, and, and you, can, you can always take these kind of things too far when you try to get a, 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 something that God is making a picture of, but in a sense the nation is the wife and the mother and, and the children that God is speaking to to say to plead to your mother are like individuals in the nation of Israel who are still trying to follow him. And he's saying plead with the whole nation, plead with your mother. He's saying, he's saying rebuke her, rebuke your mother, plead with her. And, and, he, and he's saying, remove that adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. And so the image here is that the relationship is so broken. The wife has, has gone so far. And again, I want to just say, you know, this can be flipped the other way. The image, the, the relationship can be broken in where the husband has gone so far. So don't read anything into that for that matter. But she will not speak to her husband. So he pleads with his kids to intercede even. He's desperate. 
And so he asked them, please plead with her. And so we see this insight. God is this wounded lover, and he's angry. And he's saying, I want to remove, tell her, remove that adulterous look from her face and, and, and the unfaithfulness. He's saying, what's going on here? These are, the, these are that look, the, the temptation, the tempting of people, how she attracts her other lovers. These are the things that invite and feed the affair or the possibility of more affairs. He's saying, remove these. You know, back then, and even now, God's people then were running after other gods. They were pursuing other gods. And and that was the key here, because what happened with Gomer? She wasn't being pursued by men. She was pursuing men. And so God's people were doing that, pursuing other lovers. Why? For what they could do for her, for what they could do for them. And this is the key. When we wander, when we sin, it's because we're seeking something. What can this give me? What will it bring into my life that I want? I need that. I want that. I daydream about having that. How can I make that happen? This is that process. And we find value in things and and how they make us feel uh, in lots of ways. And the problem is, if we don't find our value in God, we will find it in other places. Maybe like a position or a job. And then suddenly your life is dominated by how you were perceived about your job and what it brings to you. Maybe it's education, and then your life is dominated by how people view how you're educated and the quality of your education. Maybe it's just stuff, and your life becomes dominated by how people view your home or your car or your clothes. Or maybe it's another person. And this relationship, another person, it becomes paramount and all-consuming. Or sometimes it can be the lack of response from another person. And it consumes you. It dominates you. You, you desperately want this to happen. You know, you watch the notebook multiple times. Go, oh, the fairy tale ending. That's what I want. What we value dominates our life. Idols are things that are not from God that we are valuing, we are, we were, we're valuing too highly. You know, Paul expresses this so well when he talks about a word that's uh, uh, translated as lust in the New Testament. But the word is epithumia, and, and thumia is simply a desire. An epi is where we get the word epic. It's an over-desire. It's a desire out of control. And so Paul says the definition of lust It can be sensual, it can be sexual, but it's so much broader than that. It's this idea of a desire that is out of control for something that is not under the authority of God. It's it's, it's an idea of something that brings me value, and so I am consumed by it. You know, oftentimes in our society, people will say, follow your heart, and... uh, that's a crazy thing when you think about it. I remember Woody Allen years ago in an interview in Time magazine explaining why he married his 18-year-old adopted stepdaughter. He said, what the heart wants, the heart wants. You can't stop it. So follow your heart. That's what he says. But you know, following your heart can be really dangerous when you think about it because my heart wants all kinds of crazy things. It's often conflicted, and my heart can be very deceitful. 
this is spinach. This is healthy. I want to be healthy. I want to lose weight. I want to eat vegetables like spinach. But this is a Twinkie. I want yummy. Even yummy that will last for hundreds of years without expiring on its... Right? I want a pleasing taste. Now, some of you are going, that is a pleasing taste. Well, kind of. I want a Twinkie. Yeah, that's way better than spinach. That's just my personal opinion, and I'm not a chef. But if they can stuff this into this, I'm good. Otherwise, not so much. See, this is the problem with saying, follow your heart. Your heart is conflicted. I got twinkly now. <laughs> yeah, our pastor preaches with his mouth open. And so, our heart can be conflicted, right? People say, follow your heart. Follow your heart. And somebody can say, you know what? Follow my heart. Because I feel like killing somebody right now. Whatever, bro, follow your heart, right? No, that's the problem. We're not, we don't do that because, because that's a dangerous place for us. And so he's saying here, she's following her heart. He's saying here, rebuke her, plead with her, plead with her. Now maybe, the flip side of this, God, maybe you have experienced something like this. Maybe you've been hurt deeply. You know what it's like to be betrayed. There is a deep pain that comes with that. And you can think, can anyone know how I feel? Can anyone help me? And this is the great thing about this book. God knows your pain. He knows how it feels. He knows how it feels to be betrayed. He knows how it feels to be left. And he can comfort you because he has been betrayed and he has been mocked and he has been misjudged and he has been brushed aside. He knows how it feels to be betrayed. He walks with you in that. Now, we have to remember in this situation, the setting, this is an agrarian culture. And so um, what's going on here, and we've talked about this, at this point in time for the Israelites and their neighbors, things have been going well. The major threat in their life, Assyria, is involved in another war and has been leaving them alone for about a 50 to 60 year period. We're in that period. And crops are, so harvest is going well. Things are going well, right? And so what happens too many times for us is when things are going well, you know, we get complacent and that, and that's kind of what's going on. And so they started thinking, wow, the crops are doing well. Could they do better? Could they do better? And so they looked around and what do they see? They see some of their neighbors. They see some of the people around them. Their crops are doing well and they worship Baal. They worshiped this God, the God of fertility. And so Baal was a God that had uh, at different times, People took it very seriously, in fact, for uh, quite a long period of time, and the Israelites got involved with this, oftentimes as a pledge of, of, to the fertility of the ground, you were to offer your first fruits. But for them, the first fruit was their firstborn child, and they would sacrifice a child to the altar of Baal for ye- to get years of fertility, they believed. And also, there was, uh, it was a sex cult, and it was involved in a whole lot of different things. And so what happened? They started thinking, well, maybe we can kind of combine here. Double 
cover all the bases. And so they, they did what is, is, is theologians call it syncretism. What is syncretism? Syncretism, and this is a definition of it, it's the blending of two or more religious belief systems into a new system, always having a fatal effect on the dominant religion integrity. It's always fatal. It's always fatal. And it is fatal in their, fatal to their relationship with God because they start combining. Now, how do we do this? See, this is what is important for us is to start thinking, how do, how do I do this? We look around us. We see others and their worldview, and it seems to work. And so what happens? We begin to trust in things other than God because we see other people trusting in things other than God, and it seems to work. And so, and it does work. I don't want to just say seems. And so we trust, and so we worship because it works. Understand this. We do not worship and follow God because it works. We worship and follow God because it's true. And because it's true, it follows that it does work. But that's not why we do it. We worship and follow God because it's true. You hear people say this, and, and I've said this before. You know, they'll say, how's that working out for you? You say, well, I think that, or I've been doing that. How's that working out for you? And sometimes, you know, you'll have somebody who will say that to you with kind of a snarky, you know, kind of a, kind of a condescending way. You know, you say, well, I've been trying to do this, and da, 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 but I still got no money. Well, so how's that working out for you? You know, they say it kind of in a, in a snarky way. Well, you know, that is an operative idea in our culture. Is it working and if you think about it, the whole book of Job's about this. What happened with Job's? His friends came up to him and said, you say this is not your fault. You say you haven't done anything wrong. And yet, God is punishing you. So how's that working out for you? That was their, that was their whole point when they would talk to him. They kept saying, how's that working out for you? And so here we have God pleading. He's pleading because he's going to tell them action is going to be taken. He says, don't fall for these idols. These idols that say, hey, do what works. These idols that say, hey, do what, get, get along with people. Or do what causes the least amount of problems. As Christians, sometimes we're going to cause problems. We're going to cause problems. We've got to understand that. It's just part of the deal. I remember one time I was uh, struggling with a couple of people and my wife just looked at me and she said, why are you so surprised that people who don't know Jesus act like they don't know Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. What gets us sometimes, right, is when people who do know Jesus act like that. Okay, we'll just uh, apply as needed. I'm not going to go into that. Um, and so God is pleading He's pleading, why? Because discipline's coming. He's saying, look, you've you you got to understand, there are consequences to this. And discipline is coming. And he shows his heart here because he shows that he makes this res relentless pursuit of his people. And it's not simply about behavior, it's about their heart. He wants their heart. And you know, in those days, there wasn't just Baal. There was lots of gods. Just like today, there's a lot of things that we can put our trust in. And back then, people could worship more than one God. It was no, no God was exclusive. You could, you could you, oh, you got another God? Add him to it. Great. Worship them all. This is fine. It's no big deal. 
But God says no. God says this is exclusive. This is an exclusive relationship. And I want you to see something. Even back then, God is shaping. He's shaping their ideas of relationship with him. And he's shaping their ideas about relationship in a marriage. He's showing them the exclusivity of a marriage that goes against the dominant culture of that day. It goes totally against the dominant culture of that day. And so he's shaping their ideas on husband and wife relationships and how that's supposed to be. And too often for us, we profess our faith in God, but we trust other things. And, and, and we're tempted. We're often tempted to trust something or someone when things get tough. Especially when things get tough, we can be tempted to do that. But even when, even when things get, go well, and he's fighting against that, he's showing them this is an exclusive relationship in a, in a marriage today. It's an exclusive relationship. There are, there are vows that are made that are exclusive. You know, from this day forward, it's exclusive. And that's what God is teaching them about their relationship with him because he frames it as the idea in, in the concept of a marriage. Because exclusivity brings safety. And so he's saying to them, return to me. That's where you're safe. You know, the early Christians, you know, we say being a Christian will cause problems. The early Christians took a strong stance on marriage, and that put them at odds with the culture around them, the dominant culture. And they were often persecuted. That was part of why they were called people who were godless because you could worship all these gods you can fool around with all these women and they took a stance of no that's not what can happen so we have this betrayed lover all right we have this betrayed lover and and um in oh right here yes he says she she said i will go after my my lovers who give me my food and my water my wool and my linen my olive oil and my drink. She's pursuing. I brought that up, but she's pursuing. The nation of Israel is pursuing. It's not like with Gomer. It's not some men have come or a man has come and swept her off her feet and knows how I feel. No, she's pursuing. It's like, hey, I just met you. This is crazy. Here's my, right? She's doing the pursuing. So we have a betrayed lover. And we have a remarkable and persistent husband. And we're going to see something here. We're going to see three ways that God pursues his people. He pursues us. He pursued the nation of Israel. This is how God acts. He's, he's laying it out for us. The first way pursues his wayward people. I guess I should have put that in there. The first way he does it is by frustrating their paths. And this is in verse 6, and then also verse 7 here. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at the first, for then I was better, than now, better off than now. And so the first thing he says is, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to frustrate her paths. I'm going to hem her in. I'm going to create blockages, uh, frustrate her as she tries to go and cheat on me. Paths that lead to pain and destruction. So I'm going to actively oppose those paths. You know, when God does this, it's because he does it motivated out of love. He says, I see where that goes. Don't go that way. 
You know, in the Old Testament, when we see the blessings and the cursings, a lot of theologians talk about this. It's very interesting because a lot of times we look at the cursings as God going, you know, it's, I'm going to smash you on the head if you do this. And, and their point is that the cursings are basically saying this is, the, this is the logical, this is the inevitable end that happens when you go that way. If you go this way that's not my will, you will find frustration, destruction, and pain. Not because I'm smashing you with frustration, destruction, and pain, but because I know where this path ends. So don't take this path. If you take this path, this path leads to wholeness. This path leads to healthy. This path leads to shalom. This is the path of blessing. And so here he's telling them, I'm frustrating your paths. Why? Because I know where they lead. They lead to destruction. They lead to pain. And then we see in verse 7 here, she's fighting. She's chasing but not finding. And so finally, it's kind of like she's like, ah, I should just go back. But we see that this, we're going to see in verse 8, this is not um, out of love. This is not a real change of heart. He says, because she has not acknowledged that I am the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And what is he saying? He's saying to the nation of Israel, I blessed you. I showed my favor to you. And you used it for evil. You took what I gave you and you used it for evil. You know, for all of us, God has blessed us in various ways. But I mean, you think about it. There are things, just different things that you do that you do well. And God's saying, what are you using it for? What are you using it for? Just for you? I didn't give it for you. Give it to you just for you. He didn't place us on this earth to use oxygen, to take up resources, to build big houses, and just make ourselves feel comfortable. That's not his point. He's saying, I have blessed you. You know, we could stop here and explore it for days. But this is what happens. We take credit for what he's given us. We often take credit for what he's given us. We get stingy with gifts that he's given us. We use his gifts to indulge in things that break his heart. And because he doesn't always punish immediately, but is long-suffering, we often assume that it's okay. This is what they did. They assumed, oh, it's no big deal. They were ignorant. They lost sight of God. They forgot their first love. Isn't it funny? We see that all the way in the Old Testament, even from the very beginning, and we see it all the way at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation to one of the cities in the book of Revelation, and God says, you're doing a lot of really good things, but there's one thing that I have against you. You've forgotten your first love. You forgot me. You forgot me. You're busy, but you forgot me. You know, if you... If you decide, and I'm, I'm not trying, I don't want to guilt you into thinking of doing this like this port ministry or something like that. But if you decide to go early Sunday morning to the port ministry and you feed them some breakfast or maybe you're helping them get their medicine and, and you, you, you give them their stuff as they're getting ready to leave so that they go with their stuff and not somebody else's stuff and stuff like that. If you stop and think as you're doing that, if you stop and think about that now, one of the people I'm going to serve that morning is Jesus. One of the people, and I don't know which one. Okay, that will change the way you serve. That will change the way you serve because suddenly you will be like, it could be him. 
It could be her. Maybe her. Maybe this little kid. And suddenly it, it changes your perspective on what you're doing. They had lost sight of their first love. God seemed irrelevant and distant to them. And we can do the same thing. We can functionally give our worship to something or someone else, or even to ourselves, when we say, look what I've done. I've earned this. I deserve this. So God says, I'm going to hem them in. I'm going to cut off their paths. I'm going to stand against them in love, just like we do with our parents, just like parents do with their children. I, I know I've shared this before, but it's just, to me, it's like such a perfect illustration. When our oldest son, Derek, was really small, he had this incredible desire to play in the street. We lived in Courthouse Green, and, and, and we had some really great, like, safe places to play. And he would just, it was like, as soon as he knew you weren't looking, brrr, his little legs would be scooting along, and he'd take a little toy, and he would sit in the middle of the street. I don't know what it was. It's a weird thing, you know. Uh, I'm not sure if he's really my son, maybe switched at birth type thing, but because it's just it's nothing, I don't know where it comes from. And we'd have to go get him, and we, we were trying different things to help him to understand, you know. The, I, taught, I had a little lecture in physics, you know. I said, 4,000 pound car, 30 pound kid, let's do the math, you know, that type of thing. And he didn't get it. And, uh, and so we started getting firmer in our discipline. And, and, and one time, I remember, I went out and I got him and I'm taking him in. And he wasn't allowed to play with toys or play with the kids. And I was taking him in. And he said, you're so mean to me. And I said, yeah, dude, I'm mean to you. You're so dumb. You know, I mean, it's, it's why? Because I love him. Because I love him. It would be mean to let him do what he wants. God loves her. So one day, we're driving down the road. And I looked on the side of the road and saw something there. I pulled the car over. Derek and Holly were in the car. I got them out by their hands. And I said, look at that. Do you know what that is? And they were like, ooh, it's a squirrel. I said, yep, yep. That little squirrel disobeyed his parents and ran into the middle of the road. <laughs> and I said, what is that squirrel now? And Derek's like, a pancake. <laughs> and I'm serious. For a year, if you asked him what happens to kids that play in the middle of the road, he said, they become pancakes. So why? Why? Because I loved the guy. I loved him. I loved him. And I can't have him running into the road every time I took my eyes off of him. And this is what God is saying. God is saying to his people, I love you. I love you. And out of love, I'm, I'm hemming you in. I'm blocking your path. Because I know where it, where it leads. And so then, um, it, it, he gets... He gets more frustrated. Second way, he uh, pursues his people by frustrating their past. Now, through discipline, kind of ramping it up a notch. And, and let me read to you this. It's on your sheets there, but let me just read. It's not on the screen. Let me read um, 9 through 13. All right. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it's ready. And I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers and no one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bowels. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. And so now we have God. It's, 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 he's, he's upping it in a sense. This discipline that's based on love. 
Now look, I know for some of you, I know sometimes parents can discipline in sin. I know that. That is not God. It is wrong. And it is not what God is doing here. He's disciplining in love. It can be difficult, but he's saying, I love you too much to allow you to go this way. And so he's, he's raising the pressure, but there's no response from the people of God. In fact, in fact this line is, to me is, is such a haunting line at the end of that past section there. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. You forgot your husband. You forgot your lover. You forgot your God. You forgot your sustainer. You forgot your Savior. And so what does God do next? He's ramping it up, right? He's ramping up the pressure. What does he do next? I mean, to me, next is like Lowell the Hammer Stanley, right? Boom! It's time to lower the boom on it. I mean, to me, that's what makes sense. That seems the way. But here it is. Three ways God pursues his people. He frustrates their path. Then he amps it up with discipline. And then he allures them. He woos them. Like romance? This is a staggering turn. You know, we'd think it would be a boom, but it's bigger than a boom. Verses 14 and 15. Therefore I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. This is supernatural love. I want you to see something here. We're really getting a picture of love that is not normal. And there may be times in our lives where this just won't work, but here, God's love, supernatural love, it works for him. It works for us. And he decides that he's going to do what we would never think. No vengeance. He's going to seek to win her back. He's going to romance her. This is why this is a scandalous love. And so what does he do here? It says, he says, uh, I will lead her into the wilderness. He's going to remind her of her past. Remember the wilderness? It's like, it's like speaking to someone you love. Remember when we did that? God is saying to them, you remember the wilderness? Remember we went to the mountain? And remember, Moses came down and, and with those, those the ten, we call them the Ten Commandments, for Jews, they look at that moment as a wedding ceremony. Those are vows. You shall have no other idol before me. You shall not do this. You shall not. Those are vows. They look at that as a marriage. And God's saying, remember, remember how great it was. Remember our wedding, our vows. Remember our love. Remember me walking with you hand in hand through those days. Oftentimes, things like that, we, we look back and we try to explain it away. We try to say it wasn't what it was. But you know what? When you were in it, you knew it was real. This is, this is, this is how our, 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 our heart can be deceitful. This is how even uh, Satan can get involved in this, to try to convince you to things that you knew were real and, and later tell you that wasn't real. That wasn't real. And God is doing this with, with it. He's saying it was real. It was real. Just recently, somebody was asking Bev and I about when we got married and, and the early years of our marriage, and, and, and I was kind of telling them, they asked, and I was telling them, we were both kind of sharing with them about this, but it was interesting to me because I thought, this is interesting, we're kind of reliving this, because for both of us, um, 
it was a powerful time when, when this happened. Uh, looking back in our early years, we first got married, and we were, we were in Arlington, Virginia, and, and uh, we were volunteering with this church youth group, and, and we were working with kids, uh, refugees from Thailand and Laos um, back in the 80s that were in, uh, in that area. And, these ki- and we had this little apartment in this little dingy area, and these kids were all around us, and they'd come to our apartment, and, and they'd eat dinner with us. And, and I saw examples of faith that I haven't seen since in, in some ways. They're, for many of them, their parents, they're Buddhists, and they were very, they loved America, but they were very anti-Christian. And so one little boy showed up at my house, little middle schooler, he showed up at my house. Uh, we called him Pepsi. We couldn't say his real name, and so Pepsi became the shortened version. You know how that kind of worked. So we called him, so I said, Pepsi, what's up, man? And he's crying, and he goes, my mom caught me reading my Bible. And, and the monk came over, and he took a stick, and he beat me. And this kid had welts all over his body. He'd been beaten for reading his Bible. And so and so we're talking, and I'm saying, Pepsi, dude, listen, maybe, maybe you shouldn't read your Bible at home. Come to my apartment and read it. You can read it at school. There's so many places. If you know that this is going to be the reaction, and he looked at me, and he says, no, no, I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm going to keep reading my Bible in my home. And I was like, oh, my gosh. This is faith like I've never seen. It's more faith than I have. It was amazing. So we're working with these kids, and, and I've shared with you guys, I, I, I worked as a doorman of a really nice hotel in the D.C. area. I was making more money then than I've ever made in my life. And so, so what would happen? we grab these kids and say, our youth group's going to do this retreat, and it's free for you guys. And they were like, what? A free retreat? Yeah. And they'd go, and then we'd go, and we'd pay their way. So that, and we'd have them for dinner, and we'd do all these things. And it was the most incredible time. And I can remember thinking, I want to do this with my life. I want to share this gospel with my life. That's what led me into going into the ministry. And I remember as, as we were talking about it, because this is what God's doing here. Bev and I were sitting there, and we were talking about it, and we started holding hands. We started getting teared up. And we started talking about it because we went back to those first days when we loved each other so much and we loved God and we, and we were just in it. We were just in it. And, and God is saying to Israel here, remember, remember those first days. Remember your first love. Remember how we loved each other. He's, he's wooing them. He's wooing them. This is the... This is an incredible thing when you think about it. They're disobeying. They're cheating on him. They're committing adultery, spiritual adultery. I mean, I don't know how to, they're flipping God off, right? And he says, come back. I love you. Instead of him bonk, which he could easily do, and who would blame him? He's like, no, I love you. Remember those times? Think, think. Remember. So he says, he reminds them, this is how we got started. This is how it was. And he pursues them. He's pursuing them here, just like he pursues to this day. He pursues people. Jesus says, come to me, everyone who's weary and heavy laden. Why? Because he's pursuing us. It mentions there the valley of Achor, which reminds them of time of trouble, a time of sin. Achor means trouble. It was a place of judgment, and it was a place of defeat. And he says, I'm going to take that and turn it into a door of hope. 
This is the message of Christianity. Jesus pursues and rescues spiritual adulterers like you and me. And this is the good news because in Christ, my past failures, your past failures become trophies of grace. Think about that. God's got a trophy wall. He's got a trophy wall. And it's trophies of grace. It's the people who he has redeemed. It's their past failures that have been redeemed to be used by him to accomplish good. And so we don't have to live in the shame of our past failures because they are now trophies of grace on his wall. God can use your failures and your sins to glorify himself. He can do that. This is the relentless love of God. Final thing here. We see a betrayed lover. We see a remarkable and persistent husband. And finally, we see a renewed marriage. Um, It's not on the screen, but let me just read you verse 16. He says this. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and you will no longer call me my master. That word, my master, actually is an uh, adoption of the word Baal, a false god. He says, no, you, you will get it right. We'll get it right. In that day, looking to the future. So he says, in that day, he's looking futureward. And he says this on your screen. I will remove the names of Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. He says, he says there's going to be this new intimacy, this new wholeness, this new shalom. In verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you. And, and now this is, as, as you read it, these are like wedding vows all over again. Listen to what he says. I will betroth you in righteousness. I will betroth you in justice. I will betroth you in love. I will betroth you in compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. He says, I'm making a commitment to you. I'm reaffirming this commitment to you, this commitment that's made in righteousness, justice, love, compassion, and faithfulness. Now, what's our commitment? What do we bring to the table? You know, our good deeds. There's nothing listed here. All it says is, You say yes, and you will acknowledge the Lord. He's saying, there's a marriage going on here. I'm bringing all this to the table. What do you bring? You bring nothing because you can't bring anything. All you bring is yes, yes, I do. That's it. And God's like, man, best deal ever, right? He accepts us. Verse 21, in that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil. Remember the three kids? He's going to refresh us on the three kids. First kid's name was Jezreel, which means God sows. And it can mean God sows destruction or it can mean God sows good. right? And in the first chapter, it was God was going to sow difficulties. But he says, now, and they will respond to Jezreel. What is he saying? The earth will produce, God will sow good, and it will flourish. Verse 23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one called not my loved one. Right? The one that he said, no mercy, no love. He says, now I'm going to show love. 
It's going to be a loving relationship. I will say to those called not my people. Remember the third child? Remember the third child was not mine. Remember the playground? And they go, what's your kid's name? Not mine. Oh, that's not your kid? Oh, that's my kid. What's your kid's name? Not mine. Okay, that thing. Yeah, right. It wasn't funny the other week either, so I don't know why you guys aren't catching on. Um, can't be my fault. <laughs> so he says to the one, not my people. You're not mine. He says now, you are mine. You are my people. And they will say, you are my God. You are my God. They will fall, they will, they will fall back in love. He says, this is what's coming. He says, you are now my people. Now, in the New Testament, we get even a further explanation of this. Paul brings this up about as, as the sense of that as, as Gentiles, we are adopted into the family of God. And he uses the Roman idea of adoption to illustrate what God does for us. And let me just real briefly remind you of that, because adoption back then wasn't the same as adoption today. There's some similarities, but it was not the same. First of all, adoption was something that was a very expensive affair, so only rich people could do it. Secondly, generally what happened in adoption was, if a a person didn't have kids, they needed to carry on the family name, to carry on the family legacy, so they would adopt someone. Or, as is what happened quite a bit in Roman society, the kids that they had were total losers. And they're like, I don't want these kids carrying on my name. They're going to squander the money. They're going to ruin the name. And name was a big thing in that. And so I'm going to adopt someone to carry on my name and give everything to them, not to these, not to these low lives, right? So that's what adoption was. It was, it, it was for that reason. You could, you could kick your kid out of the house in Roman times, and it happened quite a bit. So what, what would they do? They would find, they would look around, and, and a very f- uh, famous one, Julius Caesar. Caesar Augustus, who was his son, was adopted. Because Julius Caesar was like, loser, 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 need a new kid. And so he went around, he looked for the smartest, fittest, most capable person he could, who was in a certain age range, and he adopted him. He adopted Caesar Augustus, he adopted him. And that would happen. Now, here's the thing. When that happens, you have to pay every debt that's associated with that person's name, that child's name, even his parents' debts. If you're going to adopt that child, and, and a lot of times they were adopting it like 15, 16, 17 to, for, for, the, for the point of their name, for their legacy. If you're going to adopt that child, you've got to take care of all the debts associated with that child. Does that sound familiar? All debts must be paid for the adoption to go through. Secondly, you can disown your own kids, but by law, you cannot disown an adopted kid. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are adopted into the family of God. You can never be disowned. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so he tells them, he says, you're my people. And they said, you are my God. So this started, I think the, the fulfillment started in Jesus. And it is, it is ongoing as we speak, as we find more and more people. And this is our job. Finding people and encouraging them to be adopted by God. Encouraging them to take these wedding vows. God says, "I wed you in justice, righteousness, love, compassion, and faith, and faithfulness." And what do we say? We say, "Yes, okay, I want it." 
That's all we say. That's all we do. Because all we can do is say yes. And even God is involved in that. And so we see in this second chapter, we see this, this, um, this person who is God, but he's a betrayed lover. It's remarkable and persistent how as a husband he disciplines and yet ends up pursuing out of his great love. And then we see the marriage renewed. And God says, this is, this is what I do for you. This is who you are. And he tells us, this is how I look at you. You are a part of the bride of Christ. And he promises us that if we go astray, if we, if we, if we say, God, forget you, he'll start to hem us in. He'll start to block our paths because he loves us so much. He says that he will, he will be persistent and relentless. But he says he doesn't do it to hurt us. He does it out of this great love as he tries to woo us and romance us. So we have that kind of a God. We are able to see in Hosea chapter 2 the heart of God for us. And it is incredible. It is supernatural love that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you in this story, the truth that we learn about you, that you have these emotions, you have this deep, deep love for us, and yet you, you can get angry as, as you see us go in ways that will hurt us. And so, God, I thank you that your love is so strong, that you pursue us relentlessly. And we'll do whatever it takes to keep us walking in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to examine our hearts, to take time and think, where are we going? How are we living? What are we doing with the gifts you've given us? And how are we doing as we try to walk in this world as children of God? Thank you for adopting us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to, they're coming forward, we're going to take an offering. And uh, if you are a guest here, we do not uh, ask you, we don't want you to feel pressured to give. Uh, this is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship.